Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. We're at a fork in the road between the best and the worst possible outcomes. We have an opportunity to ensure that those projections do not become a reality in Saskatchewan if we continue to take the right steps. That's 400,000 people unemployed. That's 400,000 paychecks lost. And if there is not a self-isolation plan, a quarantine site will be prepared and made available to those individuals until they can get themselves together. We have to make sure that we restart the economy without restarting the pandemic. I think we've passed three million people have taken up the Canada Emergency Response Benefit this week. Uh, I think you're going to see uh, firms, you heard that Air Canada is deciding to use this wage subsidy. You're going to see firms do that uh, very rapidly once we get Parliament to approve this in a way that gives them confidence. That was Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Over one million Canadians and counting. That's how many people have lost their jobs in March alone. And that number is expected to grow, unfortunately. The government is planning to spend billions of dollars to help businesses stay afloat and keep employees on the books. But is it enough and will the money make it in time? Joining me now to discuss that is the president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, Perrin Beattie. Thanks for joining us, Perrin. Glad to be here. Thank you. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you, too. Well, and hopefully happy Easter to some businesses uh, who are hoping to get this money being unleashed by the federal government soon. Walk me through the changes that were made to the legislation and how it will help Canadian businesses. The government made a number of, of changes. For example, uh, you're able to look at this, the last two weeks of March and a 15% drop in terms of your revenues during that period. They changed the basis for calculation to make it easier for companies that might not have existed last year or, or that uh, had no revenues last year or very low revenues last year. Uh, and that's very positive as well. So what they've done is to expand the eligibility of businesses for the wage subsidy. And that's something that's very important. The critical issue, though, now is getting the money into the hands of the companies that need it. And this really is a race against time. What's your sense of how many companies may not make it because they won't get the funding in time or that this funding simply won't be enough to save them or they don't qualify? Nobody can quantify it uh, with any precision, but we're clearly talking about tens of thousands of businesses, uh, many of which have gone dark and won't reopen as a consequence. The average uh, small business has perhaps uh, three weeks of revenues that it can function with cash in the bank to be able to function without more money coming in. We're now into going into uh, the fifth week of lockdown. And we're talking about a program that will take some weeks yet before businesses are able to find the money from that. That means that many of them will simply run out of cash in the meantime, that people, their employees will lose their jobs and the governments will lose the tax revenue and people who've invested all of their savings and, and their dreams in building a business will have lost those as well. And that's why this is a human tragedy on so many different levels and why it's essential that government look at ways of, of expediting getting this money in, in, in time to these companies that need it so desperately. One of the sectors that uh, has not received support as of yet is the oil and gas sector. What impact is that having on the Canadian economy and do you think the government should be bailing them out? 
Well, already, uh, long before we had to deal with COVID-19, the, the economy in Western Canada had been badly hit as a result of uh, problems in the energy sector, low prices for, for oil and for gas. And of course, the bottom has fallen out of the market. There's a glut of production today on global markets. Demand has fallen off dramatically. Prices have fallen. And it means then that, that in addition to all of the other problems we have in the country, there's a region of Canada that is particularly hard hit and a sector of Canada that's particularly hard hit. Uh, the government has talked about bringing in programs to address that. Uh, it's important that they do so in addition to what they're doing for the economy as a whole. Parent, how do you balance out the need for social distancing and for people to stay at home with what's happening to the economy and, and that this could go on for months, if not longer, with the Prime Minister saying that likely these measures will be in place until there's a vaccine. I'm a former health minister, and, and I believe very firmly that, that saving lives and public health comes first. But right behind that comes the health of our economy and ensuring that Canadians have jobs and that, that they have uh, security for the future. And it is so important for, for people to know at this incredibly stressful time that they're going to have a, a company to go back to, that they'll have a job to go back to. So uh, we need to ensure that we are able to keep people or keep companies on at least life support during that time and that we have an engine that we can turn back on once we make the decision to put the key back in the ignition so that uh, these interim measures are absolutely critical. Business itself should be looking right now. The government will decide the when of when we can restart the economy. But business needs to be looking now about how we can facilitate that, uh, what we can do to ensure that as we start to bring businesses back and back on stream, that we've taken the measures that are necessary to protect human health, the health of our employees, the health of our customers and suppliers and so on. And it's urgent that we that we look at that at this point rather than waiting until later. You're the father of the Emergencies Act. There's been a lot of discussion between the provinces and the prime minister about whether or not they should call this act in, which would allow them to have extraordinary powers. What are your thoughts on where we're at right now in COVID-19 and the use of the Emergencies Act? Well, the prime minister on, on Friday in his press conference was asked whether or not he believed that they should be invoking the Emergencies Act. He said not at this time. But it's clear that they've been doing consultations with the provinces that are required under the Act. Um, the key concern that I have is to ensure national coherence. What we have today is a hodgepodge where each province is using its own emergencies legislation, looking at, at how it applies within its own boundaries. So we have different standards for what constitute uh, uh, critical services that have to be maintained, critical businesses that have to stay open, different standards when it comes to uh, how many people can be in a group. And there are a whole range of other areas, particularly as we restart the economy. It's going to be very important for us to have coherence. Um, for, for example, supply chains for companies run right across the economy. And it may very well be that as we decide that we're restarting a, a, a sector of the economy or a region of the economy, that businesses in that region have to, de have to depend upon supplies from another region if they're going to function. And as a result, then, we have to take a much more strategic view. Maybe this can be done. 
by greater collaboration and coordination among the provinces. Maybe the federal government will decide they have to invoke the Emergencies Act, but the act is there as a, as a backstop. And what's critical with it as well is that it has several, lever, several levels of protection in there to ensure parliamentary accountability and to ensure as well that civil liberties are protected. Perrin Beattie, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, and happy Easter. We're going to be having more to say in the coming, uh, coming days and weeks about how we're going to pull together and make sure that uh, our agricultural producers, our fisheries, our agricultural uh, transformers uh, are going to get the support they need. With schools and some restaurants closed, many Canadians are cooking at home. Bread, a particular favourite. But that also has folks worrying about access to food basics. And the changing dynamic has created a changing demand. Shelves that used to be packed with simple ingredients like flour and yeast are now empty in many supermarkets. Meanwhile, dairy farmers are pouring excess milk down the drain with nowhere to send it. How is coronavirus affecting our food supply? Joining me now from Halifax is Sylvain Charlebois, a professor of food distribution policy in the Faculty of Management and Agriculture at Dalhousie University. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, a lot of people are heading to their supermarkets. They're hoping to perhaps uh, match those online recipes they're seeing with bread. And something as basic as, as flour and yeast, as we were just saying, very hard to get right now. Why is that? Well, essentially, we have a different consumer uh, walk, walking into grocery stores these days. Uh, instead of looking for quick fixes, uh, lunch or dinner on that day, uh, people are looking for ingredients to use at home in their kitchens, which means that people are going to be looking for flour or yeast, sugar, butter, and we've all seen shortages across the country. Supply chains are literally trying to cope with this shift, and I think they're, they, they, they've been doing a pretty good job overall, uh, but they can't really commit over the long term because this pandemic will last uh, only for a while. So right now, what we're seeing is little by little, uh, flour, yeast, and other products are, are, are being put in on shelves. Uh, to uh, satisfy demand slowly but surely uh, uh, as we go through this pandemic. So that's not necessarily a problem with food security so much as the supply chain. How would you describe Canada's food security situation right now? It's very good. Uh, I had, uh, since the beginning, uh, I felt more like a therapist than an academic, uh, reassuring <laughs> Canadians. When you really understand how the food industry works, uh, we shouldn't be worried about our own food security. The pressure, though, is actually quite significant. Uh, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect perfection at this time. We are in the middle of a crisis, so you should expect to see empty shelves here and there, but there's always food on the way. Now, at the same time as some of those shelves are empty, we're seeing dairy farmers literally pouring milk down the drain because they don't have anywhere to send it. Why is that happening? Well, supply management, uh, this is the regime we have for quotas and high tariffs on imports, it is, is designed to produce what we need uh, during regular times. Well, when there's a huge shift uh, that, that we saw in the industry, food service being uh, basically inexistent, that, has, that created a huge uh, change in uh, in milk demand and because of how rigid supply management is they don't really have 
another choice at this point but to dump milk, unfortunately. Now, we know that a lot of groups across the country are trying to divert milk and, and try to, say, manufacture uh, biofuels, for example, or uh, that milk can be used as fertilizers. But it's been a challenge because the system is just not designed to respond to such a, a, a huge shift in the marketplace. I want to take a look at farmers themselves, those who are working hard to make sure there's food on our table. And as we move into warmer temperatures and springtime, preparing to plant crops, uh, ranchers getting ready for the arrival of, uh, you know, many baby animals who will contribute eventually uh, to our food chain. But when you look at the situation, Canadian farmers depend in many cases on labor that's coming from abroad, temporary foreign workers. With the travel restrictions that are in place right now, how will that affect the number of temporary foreign workers who are able to come to Canada to supply that vital labor? So typically every year, uh, farmers will hire about 60,000 foreign workers coming from abroad, mostly from Guatemala, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Now, unfortunately, because of what's happening, it's going to be hard for them to get there. Some of them will get there, but not 60,000, unfortunately. We are expecting, based on some reports that I've seen, we are expecting 30 to 35,000 uh, foreign workers to actually reach Canada for for this coming season, which is not nearly enough. What we're so what, what happens problem, in that scenario then, if, if you have that drastic a drop in these critical workers for food production? Well, you're, you don't have the labor uh, that you need in order to get things done. And farms can be uh, dangerous places. If you don't know what you're doing, these workers are highly qualified. So it's they're going to be they're going to be hard to replace. Uh, what we're seeing now are provinces trying to provide incentives to farmers to hire Canadians. I know that Quebec and Ontario are both very proactive in enticing uh, Canadians, uh, citizens, domestics to apply for these jobs. So there are portals being set up right now to make these connections between farmers and citizens looking for work. Yeah, and what do you think of suggestions that people like Peter McKay have made that you could take some of the people who are unemployed from the cities and essentially put them out on the farms? Uh, I mean, I worked on farms when I was a kid. Uh, it's not easy work. Uh, I have a lot of respect for farmers because it is a lot of work. There are long hours. Often you work alone. Uh, it's physically demanding most of the time. And of course, uh, there's machinery. There's high technologies used on farms. So you need training. So all of that uh, will cost more uh, to farmers in order to make sure that uh, Canadian talent, Canadian human capital uh, can adapt to, to farming. Because for a while, really, um, Canadians have really thought of other jobs than, than working on farms. They've thought about working on Bay Street for firms and banks, and there's nothing wrong about that. But farming needs help right now. We just have a few seconds left, but Canadian food processors like Maple Leaf shutting down, how big of a danger is that for the food supply? That, that's a huge concern. Food processing is uh, is vulnerable. It's important to follow protocols and make employees safe. I do expect uh, COVID to uh, make people think in the industry, think about uh, plant design, for example, making sure that there's enough space between employees and where you actually hire. Some employees are bussed into work. Buses aren't necessarily great for social distancing. So th those are all the things that manufacturers will have to think about moving forward.
Fascinating and a complicated issue. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Exchanging information with Manitobans and uh, making sure that you repeat those messages about proper conduct, about proper hand washing, about proper so social distancing, and you name it. That's the preventative measure that works. Infotagen. That's the name of a new website launched late last month to debunk misinformation about COVID-19. Politicians from around the world, along with tech experts, are working together to make sure that what goes out online is accurate. Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith is one of two Canadian politicians involved in this project, and he joins me now from Toronto. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about what Infotagen is. So very simply, in the, in the last parliament, I worked with Charlie Angus from the NDP and my committee colleagues on the Ethics Committee focused on disinformation on social media platforms and online. And we then worked cooperatively with our colleagues from the UK, including the chair of our comparative committee, uh, Damian Collins. And he has taken the lead in this pandemic to create a fact-checking website, a myth-busting website, where there are, whether it's conspiracy theories or other disinformation uh, and, and misinformation and lies on the internet about the pandemic, there's a team of fact-checkers and really responding in a very simple way to say, here's the claim, is it true, is it false, is it misleading, and here are the underlying sources. So that people can really to restore trust in, in media, trust in our public health officials. Yeah, and I've, I've got it on my phone right now, and I've been scrolling through it, and it's a really simple format where it gives each theory and then true, false, uh, whether or not they're, they're sure or not, and you can click on it for more information. What's some of the most common types of disinformation about COVID-19 that you're seeing out there that this website is countering? So the website, I would say, counters large-scale disinformation, again, that propagated uh, to delegitimize uh, countries, so including the states. So there is uh, there was a, a large piece of disinformation propagated out of China that suggested this virus started out of the U.S. military. That is obviously untrue, and that is debunked very clearly on Infotagen. And then it also gets into very concrete pieces of advice for individuals acting to protect our own health and to protect the health of our communities and those around us. So, for example, there's a recent post about homemade masks and do they work? And, and if they do work, who do they work for? And very clearly on the website, in accordance with public health advice, it says that it doesn't necessarily protect you from getting COVID-19, but it certainly there is a, a knock-on effect to help you, if you are asymptomatic, but also carrying the virus, if you cough or sneeze, it would, it, would, it would provide some help to prevent it from spreading out into the community and to others. Yeah, when I was looking through uh, some of the things that you've dealt with, it had everything from uh, will drinking hot water kill the virus? No. Uh, to the masks, you said, very practical. Also, some of the more conspiracy theory stuff. Is the media lying? Is there a hospital full of bodies? Was the Chinese national anthem played in Rome? Give me a sense of the range of who's behind some of these theories, because some seem to be pretty straightforward questions that the average person would have about, for example, wearing a mask or different therapies that may or may not work versus the stuff that's was this a weaponized virus uh, or is the media covering things up? So in some cases these are coordinated efforts not necessarily always by state actors but they are coordinated efforts to delegitimize media or delegitimize Western countries as I mentioned the United States. So there are 
there, there is a more active, I think, uh, intentional disinformation approach. There are also obviously cases where there is misinformation that then others have bought into. So there's obviously a post on imputation about whether hydroxychloroquine cures the virus. And we've seen even the president of the United States indicate that that, that may have potentially beneficial effects, imputation and the clear fact-checking suggests that that is a misleading claim. And, and so it, it runs the gamut. In, in some cases, we also see it, and I think in the mass conversation in Canada, we haven't seen any proactive, purposeful disinformation, but we have seen changing information, rapidly changing to keep up with the best public health advice. And so it's also important to, to say, here's a, a website that will clearly provide sources so you can track, is this claim true? And if it is true, why is it true? And, and, and let me get behind that to, to the actual public health sources. Yeah, and, and easier to exploit when you're dealing with, you know, a new virus that nobody knows about. And as you say, the changing public health advice. How do you get the word out about this kind of a website, though? Because it's super clear and easy to navigate. But if you don't know to go to it, um, people are seeing these kind of theories and questions surface on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, all over. Uh, and they're consuming that daily as a part of their media. So very simply, I mean, it's great that we're talking about it to publicize it, sharing it on social media. I think it, it, act, it acts like there are other fact-checking websites that are non-specific to COVID-19 and very simply where people see misinformation, be it on Facebook or Twitter. But importantly, and I was chatting with Damian Collins recently, and he wanted to emphasize that we're also seeing it spread through private chat groups more than anything. So WhatsApp or, or other private network chat groups, it's very important that where that misinformation is spread, that there's an easy counter to simply post the link and say, here's proper information that debunks the claim that you are making or that others have made. Uh, and I also want to emphasize right now, there's a lot of UK content because it is, it is fundamentally led by Damian Collins and his team. At the same time, the website functions most effectively where people are submitting examples that then can be debunked. So if any Canadian out there has seen examples on social media, seen examples in private chats, please send it. The, the website has a very simple submission form. Submit those on infotation.com and, and we'll see those debunked and, and we'll have a stronger Canadian presence. Well, and obviously concerns about the consequence of bad information, misinformation, or even disinformation during a pandemic. Thanks for taking the time to share this website with us. Thanks so much, Mercedes. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson. Happy Easter, everyone, and stay safe.